This is Mike Levitt. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Cleaver and Daniel Chipping of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. you leaders out there on a value-based care journey, it is not lost on any of you that health value has become synonymous with health equity. We are at an inflection point in our society in the recognition that everyone needs a fair and just opportunity to attain their highest level of health. Achieving this will require ongoing societal efforts to address injustice, overcome socioeconomic barriers to health, and eliminate preventable health disparities. But we cannot do this as a healthcare industry without the proliferation and scale of payment models that align incentives so we can realize true change for the better. On the Race to Value this week, you will hear from one of the foremost leaders on the national scene who is shaping the landscape for accountable care delivery that advances health equity. Dr. Dora Hughes is someone who has taken this charge to lead in service to the underserved so that we may realize the dream of a more equitable and healthy society. Listeners, we are excited and truly honored to have Dr. Dora Hughes as our first podcast guest in 2023. Dr. Hughes is the Chief Medical Officer at the CMS Innovation Center at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, otherwise known as CMMI. She leads the center's work on health equity, provides clinical leadership and input on models, and serves as the Innovation Center's primary liaison with medical and clinical stakeholders, as well as provides leadership to the Innovation Center's clinician community. In addition, Dr. Hughes is part of the CMS Innovation Center's senior leadership team, helping to provide enterprise-level leadership and strategic direction to the center. In this interview, we discuss the elevated national consciousness to advance health equity, how ACOs and other risk-bearing entities can succeed with a health equity strategy, and the work being done by the Innovation Center to redesign alternative payment models for equity. We spend considerable time discussing ACO reach and value-based Medicaid transformation as well. This is certainly a conversation you should listen to as you plan for success in your race to value. Well, again, another great episode with a value-based care expert and leader. If you like this episode, please feel free to go to your favorite podcast platform. We'd love a five-star rating and a review if you're so inclined. And without further delay, let's now hear from one of the best, Dr. Dora Hughes, as she joins us this week in the Race to Value. 
Dr. Hughes, welcome to the Race to Value this week. We're really looking forward to speaking with you about your work to advance health equity and value-based care in our country. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I thought we would start with health equity, Dr. Hughes. I mean, it's no secret that the Black community tops the list of groups afflicted by hypertension, stroke, diabetes, heart disease, kidney failure, cancer, and research has been able to irrefutably show that if you control for all variables that may contribute to health disparities like education, income, access to health insurance, African-Americans still get the worst quality of health care of any demographic in the country. And what those grim health statistics don't show, however, is the pain and misery and despair that these conditions create, not only for the individual, but also for family and friends and our overall society. And these longstanding inequities in communities of color there is reason for optimism because of the great work that you and others are doing at the CMS Innovation Center. CMMI has articulated a new vision, which is as follows, to achieve equitable outcomes through high-quality, affordable, person-centered care. And to achieve this vision, the Innovation Center has developed a strategic plan around health equity and will be re-engineering alternative payment models to include health equity as a key financial measure for success. I mean, there's foreseeably going to be a time in the future where all ACOs will need to conduct disparity impact assessments and health equity reports to monitor whether their institution-level policies proactively reduce health disparities. In addition to the equity focus by CMS, also the general public is now becoming awakened to this issue of longstanding health disparities because of COVID-19 and the nationwide recognition of police brutality and other instances of institutional racism that are so pervasive in our society. So I wanted to ask you if you could share your perspective on how this elevated national consciousness may be the catalyst to advance health equity. And then how can we as a healthcare industry position ourselves to better recognize this opportunity in this historic moment to address our most vulnerable populations to reduce disparities in care? Thank you. Thank you for that question. Now, certainly I agree with your premise that we're now at this point where there's this a great awakening but I, I was at a conference recently and I heard uh, the self-introduction by uh, by Dr. Kara James who's the president and CEO of Grandmakers in Health and as part of her introduction she said um, uh, I'm someone who is who is working on equity before it became cool to work on equity and uh, which you know made a, a number of us laugh and I, I think uh, she did she was underscoring underscoring the reality that there is a significant foundation of work uh, that has been seeking to describe, to better understand, and to intervene uh, to address health inequities. I mean, we could go back to the uh, 1980s with the Heckler Report, the early 2000s with unequal treatment, uh, certainly uh, the Surgeon General Satcher's Report on mental health disparities. I mean, there's, there's just a, has been a significant amount of work uh, and some has been by, uh, conducted by the research community, some has been by providers, institutions, organizations, advocates, all of whom have, uh, again, been really committed to identifying and reporting on disparities, uh, developing and testing interventions to close identified gaps in access and care, and really, perhaps more recently, beginning to forge new types of relationships between clinical providers and community-based organizations, social service sector partners, public health, uh, for all that. It's just a very, uh, has been just a very exciting time to see 
uh, the momentum builds and the progress that we've made in, in addressing the health inequities that you described at the uh, beginning of our conversation. That being said, I do agree, uh, and it's been felt by many that despite all of these uh, collective efforts, health equity was still not the national priority that it needed to be uh, outside of the small but very committed and growing group of providers and policymakers that have been engaged. Uh, it really took the pandemic and uh, the police brutality um, collectively just kind of kicked down the door and, and blasted <laughs> these issues uh, into the national consciousness and gave a platform uh, to all the stakeholders that had been steadily working on these issues uh, for decades uh, without the recognition that they needed to be maximally uh, effective. All right, certainly, I don't have to tell you the COVID disparities and who got sick and who died uh, sparked the conversation. But I, I think that over the last year or so, the conversation has expanded pretty quickly to uh, many of the other issues that still have not been adequately addressed. The Black maternal health crisis is, is one prime example, but there's so many for thinking about the disparities in colorectal cancer, kidney disease, the list is, is super long. And so I guess I, I, I agree with you. The pandemic was a catalyst and that for the first time we're seeing new partners coming to the table, uh, but even existing partners, they are coming to the table with even more resources dedicated to addressing health, uh, health equity. We are seeing commitments at the highest level. We're hearing about increasing accountability, uh, examples such as executive pay being tied to reduction in disparities. I mean, you didn't, you wouldn't have heard that uh, 10 years ago or even perhaps five years ago. Uh, I like to, to quote my colleague, uh, CCSQ Deputy Jean Moody Williams, uh, who likes to say, for those of us engaged in health equity, this is our moment, but it is only a moment. And so we are trying to seize upon this moment. And for those in the healthcare industry, it is time to do what has long been recommended. There's not necessarily new recommendations, but to do uh, what we've always known has needed to be done. We need to collect and analyze demographic and health data to know who we are serving, to really know our patients individually and at the population level. We need to identify any disparities in healthcare access, quality, and outcomes. We have to implement evidence-based interventions. We don't have to look even further than the Centers for Disease Control, and they have uh, published a number of recommendations that focus on high blood pressure you mentioned, cancer screening, et cetera, that could really help to address disparities and improve care in underserved populations. We need to pilot test new interventions. We have to monitor and track our progress over time pivot as we need to hold ourselves accountable. That is really, uh, in a nutshell, all that we are trying to do at the CMS Innovation, to kind of marshal the evidence that we already have, to do what we know needs to be done, uh, and to really implement them at scale in our models in a ways that we can test uh, the interventions and track our progress over time. I would say, certainly, the I'm not going to minimize the challenges facing the Black community and other underserved communities. But that said, I mean, I just, I think of it differently. I think there's a vibrancy and a resiliency and just a kind of an indomitable spirit to, to really tackling these health disparities and really thinking through how do we make progress? And so as I was thinking back on the first question, I, I did want to frame it 
a little differently. That's how I view it. And I think others uh, would view it that way as well. Again, acknowledging um, the suffering and, and the, the challenges facing so many communities, but certainly recognizing at the same time the opportunities that we have before us and trying to think positively about where we go from here. Dr. Hughes, uh, I love that vision that you've painted and the the optimism that I hear in your voice. We're recognizing the significant influence that social factors like housing and food and insecurity, employment status and transportation have on well-being and on healthcare spending. And these social determinants of health, in addition to health behaviors, influence 80% of health outcomes in the U.S. and disproportionately affect low-income populations. As reimbursement models transition away from fee-for-service to value-based payment, CMMI has been putting greater focus on innovative models of care that integrate medical and non-medical services to improve health outcomes. In addition to the work being done with ACOs, I know the Innovation Center also launched the Accountable Health Communities Demonstration Project that tested whether identifying and addressing the social needs of Medicare and Medicaid beneficiaries can reduce healthcare costs and utilization. And while these and other models differ in scope, structure, and target population, they generally rely on establishing a new breed of partnerships like the ones you were describing between healthcare and community-based organizations. And these alliances, they're emerging between healthcare and community-based organizations. They have the potential to better address the medical and social determinant needs of patients. And as trusted members of their communities, these CBOs have established relationships with various community resources, as well as experience addressing social support issues like the housing, the nutrition, the transportation, so many things that are lacking among many hospitals and healthcare providers. What would be your advice to ACOs and other risk-bearing entities that are establishing a health equity strategy and looking for community partnerships to improve their care for underserved populations? And how can they better address social needs like the socioeconomic status, the education, neighborhood, physical environment, employment, social support networks, et cetera, in an individualized and culturally relevant way. If you think over the last 10 years, and especially I'd say over the last five years, there has been a growing recognition and embrace of the notion that much of what contributes to health in the long term. Uh, reflects what happens outside of the walls of the doctor's office or the hospital or health system. And to your point, um, we agree, as reported by CDC and others, upwards of 80%, which is really incredible when you think about it, 80% of what contributes to health reflects non-medical or social determinants of health, uh, such as healthy eating, stable housing, educational economic opportunity, jobs that pay living wages, safety, and so forth. And so to maximize our patient's health, we as providers, we have to think about our role both inside and outside the health system. We think that as providers, we can play an important role in having our patients screen for social needs uh, and connecting our patients with needs with the social service providers who can help provide the needed assistance. You mentioned that accountable health communities models. I agree. It was just truly influential in pioneering uh, the efforts to foster linkages between clinical and community providers. It was revolutionary at the time that it was conceptualized and launched in 2016, 2017. 
really thinking about how can we forge relationships between clinical and community health providers through anchor institutions um, to systematically screen and refer patients who are high utilizers of healthcare, i.e. presenting to the emergency department for non-emergency needs over certain periods of time. Again, all of these initiatives are fairly commonplace now, but that was not the case when the AHC model launched. And the model was both a proof of concept, can providers actually do this, as well as a model test, i.e. what were the outcomes, what will be the outcomes with respect to health and costs if we are able to screen and, and help refer our patients with social needs to those that can address them. And so the model was able to prove both. Uh, yes, this can be done. And an interim evaluation found a 9% reduction in emergency department use among participants. And so we, even as we're, uh, the model is just winding down and we're going to do the full and final evaluation, certainly, we've already started to build upon what we've learned in the AHC model and some of our newer models. And I think it really demonstrates how far healthcare has evolved and understanding that we are not going to be able to achieve our health goals without addressing health-related social needs. But that being said, there, there certainly are challenges for us and other payers trying to support these types of efforts. For example, if we even think about traditional Medicare fee-for-service, it, it doesn't allow us as providers to bill for screening and addressing social needs. There's not a code that we can use to say we provided assistance with food, nor does Medicare does it allow the statutory authority to allow for food assistance, as one example of similar cases would be true uh, in some cases uh, for housing and utilities and other social needs. And so because of this, these value-based arrangements that we are supporting through our models at the CMS Innovation Center have really been critically important. In some cases, such as Medicare Advantage, there is authority granted by the Congress for the plans to provide supplemental benefits targeted to those in need. But in other cases, outside of MA or Medicare Advantage, through our models, we are testing whether providing flexibility in how we deliver or pay for care, such as through capitated payments or enhanced per member per month or advanced payments, can that help in hiring the right kind of staff, for example, such as social workers or community health workers um, that can help provide the right type of care and services for our beneficiaries or provide money for infrastructure investments and data collection and tools that can facilitate screening for social determinants of health or SDOH as another example. Another challenge we often hear for providers, that, that is not why we went to medical school, it is not why we went to nursing school. I don't have the right skill set, it's out of my lane. And, and frankly, we, we largely agree. Uh, we think it's critical that clinicians partner with those community health and social service providers, with public health agencies, with area agencies on aging, those that do have the expertise and experience for caring for uh, and addressing social needs. Uh, we often see such partnerships directly between individual organizations and providers and plans, uh, and we certainly support that. However, to your point, uh, ideally, we would want to see these partnerships more at the community level, more upstream. And so in addition to addressing individual needs, can we address uh, gaps in services to everyone's benefit with the right types of policies and programmatic interventions to address food deserts or lack of affordable housing or weak transportation infrastructures at the community level so that the entire community can benefit. 
we think that this will help in more sustainable improvements in the long term. And, and finally, you asked about how to care for patients in uh, culturally relevant ways. I, I think that's uh, how you phrased it. And we are increasingly focusing on, on this issue as well. We have a number of resources available at the federal level through um, the Department of Health and Human Services and the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS's Office of Minority Health. Um, they are, CMS OMH, uh, they are starting to really push on greater implementation of, of the National Culturally and Linguistically Appropriate Services Standards or CLAS standards as they are more commonly known. Uh, I would encourage anyone who wanted more guidance in providing more culturally congruent care to visit the website uh, at CMSOMH uh, and look specifically at the CLAS standards. They provide, uh, it's just a wonderful guidance with concrete examples of how providers could and frankly should uh, be caring for diverse patient populations. And I find um, CDC to be another excellent resource with a number of materials that are focusing on uh, advancing equity as well as uh, providing culturally uh, congruent care. Uh, and even outside at the federal level, there are a number of other organizations that uh, I find could be a helpful resource. As one example, the NCQA, uh, they have their Distinction in Multicultural Healthcare, which provides guidance and uh, recognition to plans that are provide, providing culturally appropriate care. I, I would think that that could be an example of another resource. I think at this time, there, whether you're at the federal level or if you're in the public or the private sector at the state and local level, there's just a tremendous amount of resources and interest in this area. And I expect that we'll continue to see progress um, in this regard as well. Well, Dr. Hughes, in support of its health equity work, I've seen that the Innovation Center uh, has recently been focusing on a review of existing experimental payment and service delivery models to determine whether implicit bias is present, and if so, whether such bias leads to the unintentional exclusion of certain beneficiary groups from those models. And there was an exercise that was conducted specifically around identifying this implicit bias and looking for these differential impacts and whether or not they're uh, a part of the algorithm or the sequential rules or processes that are, uh, that are inherent within the model. And there was a particular focus on racial and ethnic groups. And the models that CMMI looked at in its uh, study was the kidney care choices model, the comprehensive care for joint replacement model, and the million hearts cardiovascular risk reduction model. And together, those models, of course, represent only a small but varied microcosm of the innovation center portfolio. But focusing on and examining these models, it does uh, uh, allow for identification of uh, potential sources of biases and, and helps better understand the risk assessment and screening tools and provider tools and payment design and risk adjustment algorithms that are a part of the payment models altogether that may exclude some beneficiaries. And I'd love to ask you more about the findings of this study. Can you elaborate on the initial actions being taken by CMMI to address sources of bias for ongoing models and how that's going to lead to a more system evaluation of implicit bias in current and new models? And also, given what's been learned in that recent study, how is the Innovation Center planning to detect potential 
implicit bias and existing and future models as a necessary precursor to mitigating or eliminating such bias? Thank you, Eric, for that question. This is such an exciting area of work for the Innovation Center. I do have to, to provide a plug for uh, a blog in Health Affairs that described our implicit bias work. Um, the first author is Melissa, my colleague, Melissa Majoral, who's with the CMS Innovation Center. For those that are interested in reading more details, uh, certainly I, I refer you to that blog in Health Affairs that we published earlier this year. But to your point, yes, in early 2021, about a year ago, the center conducted an implicit bias pilot study to determine if our models had unintentionally uh, introduced bias in, in whatever way, perhaps by the clinical algorithms used or the recruitment strategies or payment design or whatever policies or programs that led to the critical elements of, of the models. We looked at three of our models. You mentioned them already, but just briefly, the Million Hearts Comprehensive Care for Joint Replacement and Kidney Care Choices model. And we found the potential for bias in each of them. As, as one example in our kidney model, uh, we uh, nephrologists who were participating in that model relied upon the race-adjusted estimated glomerular filtration rate, or also known more simply as EGFR, which was the standard of care at the time the model was conceptualized and launched. They used the EGFR to determine who was eligible for the model. This race-adjusted measurement tool has, has now been disavowed by all of the leading kidney expert and advocacy groups because, because it erroneously results in, in findings um, that would signal that many Blacks have better kidney function than they really do. Thus, for our model, as we as we looked and thought about implicit bias, many Blacks may have been ineligible for the model because of the use of this race-adjusted EGFR, uh, because the model was targeting individuals with poor kidney function or those approaching end-stage renal disease. And so if by use of this race-adjusted tool, it seemed like your kidney function was better than it actually was, then you would not have been eligible, may not have been eligible for the model. Uh, as another example in the Million Hearts model, our participants relied on a heart disease calculator that incorporates race and ethnicity into its algorithm. Expert groups, again, are cautioning against relying upon the results of this heart disease risk calculator because for certain groups, it underestimates the risk of heart disease. Again, disadvantaging these groups from being eligible for our model and its benefits, in this case, education, additional services uh, that were provided. So, so again, thinking about the findings from these models, as well as CGR, uh, the joint replacement model, Melissa Majoral and I, we have developed an implicit bias assessment tool and checklist. These are draft. Uh, we are piloting these tools now uh, with some of our newer models under development uh, to see if, if, we, if we really look at models early in their stages development, are we able at the front end able to identify potential sources of bias early? Uh, early enough so that we can eliminate or at least mitigate bias before the model design is finalized and certainly before it's launched. We are working with these new model teams. Now we even are thinking about even after a model is launched, would this be something we'd want to continue to 
double check our, our earlier decisions and make sure that we didn't miss any potential sources of bias uh, and certainly at the end in terms of evaluation. Um, so we, we are very much in the thick of things uh, as after we go through this pilot phase of testing our tool and, and refining it, finding out how it's worked out for the model teams as they go through this exercise. We certainly will plan to share more information publicly about this uh, and possibly certainly for some groups it's been already helpful to get their input and their thinking i would also note that even as we are doing this here it's been helpful to have more focus nationally on this issue and, and certainly even federally one of our colleagues in, in onc is part of their uh, recent nprm uh, proposed rulemaking for section 1557 they have included a focus on clinical race adjusted clinical algorithms as part of the non-discrimination rules. So I think that whether it's us at the federal level, uh, across multiple different agencies and offices, certainly we're hearing more from plans and other uh, hospitals and health systems as they're thinking about it, certainly some academic and research groups, um, that there's just uh, more focus in the area. And I think that's only helpful for us because it's um, if, if we're all attempting to tackle implicit bias uh, collectively, certainly uh, I think we'll be more successful in the long term. Dr. Hughes, we definitely have a lot of positive signs that support the equity movement. And we've also had a lot of positivity behind the value movement and accountable care. And in fact, the, the accountable care model has had a long history of bipartisan support. And when you think about it, starting with the physician group practice demonstration program, passed under President George W. Bush's administration in 2000, and then further expanded under President Obama's administration. ACOs are proving to be one of the most promising solutions to bend the cost curve and provide high-quality patient care and a premier payment model in the shift to value-based care. And the MSSP CMS flagship ACO program is an important bellwether for the value movement. And the 2021 performance year marks the fifth consecutive year that the MSSP has generated net positive savings to CMS while simultaneously reporting high quality performance results for its participants. Although it's down from 4.1 billion in 2020, ACOs collectively reduced Medicare expenditures by an impressive 3.6 billion in 2021 compared to the program's benchmark spending goal. And the drop in overall savings was partly attributed to reduced ACO participation as we, as we know, there were fewer or 38 fewer ACOs than in 2020. And the number of ACOs in the MSSP has only modestly increased from that last performance year. And following multiple years of flat or declining ACO growth, this trend is actually concerning and puts in jeopardy the publicly stated goal of having every Medicare fee-for-service beneficiary in an accountable care relationship by 2030. I'm hoping you can provide our listeners with your perspective on the value movement as it relates to the growth of ACOs and other APMs. Should we be concerned at all with the lack of growth in the shared savings program? And with Medicare spending continuing to rise to out of control levels and ACOs proving that they can effectively increase quality and lower spending, what is the Innovation Center doing to increase the size of ACO programs in traditional Medicare? Thank you for that that question, Daniel. I, I certainly just at the outset, I would acknowledge that this is uh, an issue that we are singularly focused on. Um, we acknowledge that the pandemic most recently, but even before the pandemic, that um, that there have 
been reduced growth and of ACOs and, and frankly, participation in other APMs as well. We try to tackle this and address it directly as part of our strategy refresh that, that you mentioned that we released last year. Uh, although even as our focus was on was on growth, but we were also just trying to think about strategic growth. Like what what is the what should the future direction be? What are the gaps? What are the opportunities uh, for, uh, for us here at the Innovation Center to promote ACOs? Uh, or just being very direct and very specific as our administrator always uh, charges us, like what are the healthcare problems we are facing? What are the potential solutions? And, and how will the solutions be tested by our ACO models? I like, what are the populations? What are the providers? the settings, what are the specific care delivery and payment policies that we'll be embedding? And of course, certainly how will we uh, center our efforts to address equity, all of that. And so that is kind of the broader context as we're thinking about uh, the growth of ACOs and, and how we are, have been intending to address it. Even, even at the policy level internally, we are also redoubling our efforts to engage with our external partners. I mean, certainly we point to PTAC or the Healthcare Payment Learning and Action Network or the LAN, which we've seen um, there'll be changes in the composition of the executive forum, the launch of the health equity advisory team as part of the LAN last year. And even outside for uh, these professional societies, expert groups, we're also trying to hear more directly from folks on the ground who have experience uh, with ACOs, those that have been successful, as well as those that have uh, struggled. Uh, our center director, Liz Fowler, other senior leadership, all of us, we've conducted a number of site visits over the past couple of months. And coming away from these site visits and hearing from those that are actually doing the hard work on the ground, as well as, again, these uh, more uh, expert groups and organizations, we are convinced more than ever that fee-for-service can't fix uh, what's not working. Uh, we are hearing physicians that, you know, just creating new codes for care coordination or e-consults and, and other aspects of care we want physicians to provide it just isn't enough. We really have to change the payment incentives in a more comprehensive and holistic way. Uh, and we think that the shared savings that ACO provide, and in particular the advanced payments that some ACOs, uh, specifically GPDC and REACH, make available, uh, means that practices can make better use of nurse practitioners or physician assistants for home visits, for example, or that they'll know when their patients go into the hospital. Under fee-for-service, they don't know when a patient's hospitalized. The ACOs can help providers keep closer tabs on patients at high risk for their condition worsening and or a need for urgent care. Um, these site visits have really been helpful to, for us to get a better picture of what's wrong today why these changes are needed and, and really strengthening our resolve to uh, increase our support and investment in the ACO models. Uh, to your point too, we are also working more closely than ever with our partners in Medicare, in the Center of Medicare, um, to try and better align our ACOs and um, the shared savings program. Um, last year, our administrator, Chiquita Brooks-Lashur, she tasked us with developing a vision for ACOs across CMS. And in April of this year, we released a CMS-wide vision in the New England Journal of Medicine to increase, it was, yes, in April of this year, to how are we going to increase the reach of ACOs to more beneficiaries with our Medicare colleagues? 
this piece outlined our shared goals and our steps at the Innovation Center and the shared savings programs can take to achieve our 2030 accountable care goals for the beneficiaries. And the basic idea is to use the shared savings program as our national ACO program as a chassis for testing innovation center models and scaling successful features of our models. For instance, uh, CMS has proposed scaling successful features of the innovation center ACO investment model or AIM uh, and the Medicare physician fee schedule rule as an advanced incentive payment option in the Medicare shared savings program. I, we need to think this is an excellent example of how successful model features can be scaled more broadly into the Medicare program. And in the future, we could see how successful features of ACR reach, for example, perhaps the equity provisions could be scaled more broadly, again, using SSP as the chassis. And I would just also note our SSP colleagues, they too have proposed a number of changes, including to the benchmark uh, to grow ACO participation. And we've estimated that if these provisions are finalized, three to four million more beneficiaries per year could benefit from accountable care over a 10-year period. So again, we recognize that the challenges with the, the flat growth, um, but we do think that uh, this kind of renewed attention and all these efforts, though they will take some time to translate into more growth of our APMs, we are absolutely committed uh, to achieving our 2030 goals. They are ambitiously, but we also think they are achievable. Well, these 2030 goals are exciting. And uh, I know ACO reach is going to be a big part of that. And I'd love to hear more from you about this new program. Uh, the ACO reach program, unlike other APMs to date, has made health equity a bedrock of payment model design. And as defined by CMS, the purpose of the new reach model which starts in 2023 is to quote unquote, improve the quality of care for people with, with Medicare through better care coordination, reaching and connecting healthcare providers and beneficiaries, including those beneficiaries who are underserved. And the focus of this model is to develop and implement a robust health equity plan to identify underserved communities and implement initiatives to reduce disparities within their beneficiary populations. It's a huge leap forward, Dr. Hughes, in the value movement. I, I commend you for the work that, that you and other CMMI uh, uh, officials are doing uh, in developing this new model. And there's a significant number of our podcast listeners that are ACO REACH participants, and they're preparing for their required submission of a health equity plan, which is going to be due at the beginning of the performance year, probably around March. So I wanted to ask you as one of the nation's leading experts on value-based care delivery, payment model innovation, and health equity, can you provide some perspective on how the ACO REACH program will enable providers to provide high-quality care for those patients with chronic conditions and improve outcomes in underserved and rural and urban communities? And then also, what would you say to the critics of the REACH program that are saying that the program actually creates inequities by restricting care for underserved seniors due to the misaligned or the perceived misaligned financial incentives that may allow providers to pursue aggressive di diagnostic upcoding that may miscategorize patients and as high risk and marginalize those most in need. CMS is committed to better care and better health outcomes for our Medicare, our Medicaid, and our CHIP beneficiaries. But as part of our look back at our first 10 years and thinking about what our 2030 goals should be, we've also 
just increasingly heard from our provider, from our provider group partners, as well as patient advocacy partners, and just really underscoring and reminding us again that navigating the healthcare system is complex and it's difficult for anyone, but especially those for uh, in underserved communities. And, uh, and, and sometimes I think about the healthcare system, I think about my own experiences. I think one year I was seeing an endocrine, an endocrinologist, I was seeing a, a surgeon, I was seeing, uh, I had to see two different types of uh, radiology specialist. Uh, I had to see a neurologist and uh, this, and of course, my primary care physician. And my situation is certainly was not unique. I mean, between when we look at the stats between 2000 and 2019, the percentage of beneficiaries seeing five or more physicians annually increased from 17 and a half percent to 30 over 30 percent. And even more startling was the increase in the number of physicians a primary care provider had to coordinate with on behalf of their patients. This rose from 52 physicians in 2000 to 95 physicians in 2019, an 83% increase. Most importantly, this means a Medicare beneficiary would have multiple providers receive duplicative and unnecessary services often with out-of-pocket costs for each service, with no one provider being held accountable for the overall quality and care. So this is where ACOs and models like ACO Reach come in. In uh, ACOs, physicians and other healthcare providers, they join together to take responsibility for the quality of care their patients receive and the total cost of that care. These responsibilities encourage providers to coordinate the services across clinicians in care settings. The purpose of the ACO REACH model, which we just announced in March of this year, is to encourage healthcare providers to coordinate care to improve health outcomes for people with Medicare, especially those from underserved communities. Uh, we uh, heard quite a bit of feedback from our stakeholders about the former GPDC model, and that really helped us to redesign the model to, uh, which has led to the ACO REACH model. And the redesign is centered around the following priorities. First and foremost, a much greater focus on health equity and closing disparities in care, but also a focus on an emphasis on provider-led organizations, strengthening beneficiary voices, stronger beneficiary protections through ensuring robust compliance with the model's requirements and uh, increased screening of model applicants and monitoring of model applicants. And so I think uh, as we're already hearing, the ACO REACH model uh, and other ACOs really offer flexibility to healthcare providers in how they deliver and they coordinate care, such as being able to provide greater access through telehealth or care teams that include social workers or, or nurses. I, I was, find it's very helpful to just share some specific and uh, concrete examples. Um, and I'll uh, say a few stories that we've heard back from our participants. Uh, one, um, uh, focusing on diabetes control, we heard that one physician-owned and physician-directed organization that was established during COVID uh, and serves a, a very diverse and complex patient base in a large urban area in less than a year, in less than one year, the number of Medicare beneficiaries being served through this ACO uh, with good diabetes control increased from 55% to 
if we were thinking about uh, looking at preventive care, preventive dental behavioral care for underserved uh, patients, we were uh, intrigued to hear from another organization that's partnering with a federally qualified health center, that they are able to provide such preventive health services and dental services and behavioral health to underserved patients in rural communities, in this case, in Massachusetts and Georgia. Uh, we heard about another ACO, this will be my last example, that is focusing on pharmacy coordination and medication management. The organization's multidisciplinary team incorporates the pharmacists and offers medication management support um, that can help patients keep track of their medications, which, as you know, is a frequent sort of confusion, and identify any contraindications, uh, which can result when care is not coordinated across specialists. Um, as the innovation centers lead on health equity, uh, I would note that compared to prior value-based care initiatives, ACO REACH is forging new ways to address the health inequities underserved communities experience. ACO REACH will be introducing innovative policies starting in 2023 to promote health equity, uh, including a requirement for all REACH ACOs to develop a health equity plan that must include identification of health disparities and specific actions that can mitigate the health disparities identified. ACO REACH includes a health equity benchmark adjustment to better support those ACO participants who are coordinating care for patients in underserved communities. The REACH ACO includes a requirement for all participants to collect beneficiary-reported demographic and social needs data, which is important and is critical to enable CMS to determine whether quality is improving for all beneficiaries aligned to ACOs, including underserved patient populations that are often left out uh, of the evaluations. To ensure that ACOs meet the model goals of improved quality of care and health outcomes for Medicare beneficiaries, uh, CMS assesses an ACO quality performance during each performance year. We use the CAP survey, a commonly used survey that's given directly to beneficiaries to assess their experience of care. Uh, we're also assessing quality by looking at measures of hospital use that include readmissions, and all-cause unplanned admissions for patients with multiple chronic conditions. Um, but I do want to address your point. You, uh, those that have criticized or expressed concerns about the models, we, we are taking those concerns very seriously, and we've made some significant changes uh, to uh, that you'll see in the ACO REACH model. Uh, we believe, we cannot overemphasize that Protecting beneficiaries is first and foremost and anything that uh, we must do at CMS. Uh, and we, we just think that there's a number of features that we've embedded into ACR Reach that can address, fully address these uh, concerns um, that we've heard from our stake, stakeholders. Uh, first, we are using all the data we have to conduct analysis to detect unintended behaviors, patterns, and trends. Um, these analyses include monitoring for care, stinting, and changes in access to compare um, by comparing trends in the utilization of services by beneficiaries in our model with those who are not in the model. Uh, we'll do this comparison to see if there's any differences in the use of primary, specialty, hospital, uh, or post-acute care, and frankly, as well as to see if there's any differences in coding uh, that would indicate upcoding inappropriately. We also use analytics 
to monitor beneficiary alignment for indicators of possible discriminatory practices uh, based on health status or other characteristics of our aligned beneficiaries and to analyze beneficiary movement between traditional Medicare and Medicare Advantage or CMMI models in MSSP. We will uh, uh, be monitoring ACO risk score growth to identify inappropriate coding practices. We believe that the ACO REACH model has the most stringent approach to risk adjustment, risk adjustment and is more restrictive than Medicare Advantage and the Medicare Shared Savings Program. Uh, in our model, we have a, mo uh, a coding intensity adjuster that we call the coding intensity factor, or CIF, um, that is designed to preserve a budget-neutral application of risk adjustment. And we also have a risk score growth cap that limits the individual ACO's risk score growth potential to plus or minus 3% uh, over a two-year period. Um, but finally, and I, certainly I would say above all else, um, beneficiaries with traditional Medicare, which would include those who seek care from a health provider participating in a REACH ACO, retain all of their rights, coverage, and benefits, including the freedom to see any Medicare provider. Uh, like previous ACO models, the ACO REACH model prohibits limited networks, prior authorization, or any other means of restricting care. And even if the beneficiary is aligned to a reach ACO, they always have the freedom to see any Medicare enrolled provider. So certainly I recognize it, a bit of a long response, <laughs> although to your long question, uh, but I really just want to underscore the importance uh, to us uh, of getting it right to make sure that we're protecting and promoting the health of beneficiaries who are participating in, in all of our ACO models and especially uh, our newest ACOH model that will be launching. Dr. Hughes, I'm really grateful for the thoughtful leadership that you're that you're exhibiting and that you're sharing with us. And, and I know that the ACO REACH program has been really thoughtfully built and designed. And one of the intents is to attract more provider-led organizations to join the model, including former next-gen ACO participants or MSSP ACOs who are interested in deepening their participation in Medicare risk arrangements, as, as well as provider entities who are new to these initiatives. Can you please provide perspective on CMS's newly refined eligibility criteria for ACO REACH? And why does it matter when it comes to advancing health equity, promoting provider leadership and engagement, and enhancing beneficiary protections? Um, thank you for that. We, we said from the outset that we wanted participants in the ACO REACH model um, that had experience and expertise in caring for beneficiaries from underserved communities. And so even from the outset, we signaled that as we were screening and reviewing applications, that would be one of the scoring criteria. In fact, that was uh, the case. We also conducted outreach to entities that we thought would be great participants in the model, that we're really ensuring that uh, we're not leaving any communities, particularly underserved communities, behind uh, as we continue to move forth uh, with our efforts to transform healthcare, to improve quality, and to reduce costs. So we're pretty excited. Uh, as part of that, though, certainly for ACO REACH and other models, I mean, again, these are tests. And one of the elements that will be part of the test you mentioned is uh, requiring health equity plans from our model participants. 
uh, we were encouraged even as we uh, are encouraging voluntary health equity plans by the very robust response that we got, even as, a, as part of a voluntary uh, requirement, uh, which certainly bodes well for when they are required element. Um, but we've been working very closely uh, on these health equity plans to think about what's an appropriate template, what's a guide, what's a checklist, what's the information that we could push out to the applicants to guide their submissions back to us. And we're quite fortunate. We've been able to work very closely with uh, the CMS Office of Minority Health, uh, who certainly have incredible expertise in this area uh, and are able to provide contractor support uh, and to, to, again, really think about from the outset what we're hoping to encourage our ACR REACH participants to do in terms of understanding who, looking at their population, collecting the data, assessing for any disparities, proposing the interventions that can address any, uh, and any disparities that are found, monitoring, tracking over time, and updating these plans as the, as the need may be. Um, so it's, it's not static, but continuing to address the needs of the underserved communities that they may be serving. Um, so I think uh, all of that through the health equity plans, that's part of the test, just as the health equity benchmark adjustment, that is part of the test. Like how do you, what are the different ways that we can provide resources to those participants that are caring for a disproportionate number of underserved patient populations? What are the benefit enhancements? All of that uh, is, is part of our, our tests and we're hoping to learn what we can from ACR REACH, but also think about how we can iterate upon what we learn. We think that these efforts will help to ensure that we have ACOs participating in the model that are run by healthcare providers and are laser focused on providing high quality care to our beneficiaries. Well, Dr. Hughes, we spent a lot of time talking about Medicare and I wanted to shift the conversation to Medicaid. You know, as we're seeing Medicaid costs continue to rise, ACOs are, are gaining traction as Medicaid payment models, and CMS aims to transition the vast majority of Medicaid beneficiaries into accountable care relationships by 2030. And with more than 70% of Medicaid beneficiaries enrolled in managed care, CMS cannot reach this goal if Medicaid ACOs only focus on the fee-for-service population, as most Medicare ACOs do. And this necessitates an understanding of how ACOs can function in a Medicaid managed care population and incorporating ACOs into existing MCOs, that would allow each state to continue paying for most Medicaid services on a fully capitated basis, which would shift the financial risk and the unpredictability of enrollment and care volume to those experienced MCOs. And CMS has continued to encourage innovation and value-based care delivery forms in whole person care and Medicaid. And I'm just thinking about how uh, how the work that CMS is doing is going to help with partnering with states to ensure that the healthcare system can continue to uh, support the whole person care needs, like the things that we've talked about, like physical health, beh behavioral health, oral health, long-term service and social support needs, longstanding gaps in, in various areas uh, related to social determinants. Can you discuss the work that's being done to further align Medicare value-based efforts with Medicaid. And, and also, in addition to the equity focus of ACO REACH, will the Innovation Center find a way to include more 
providers serving low and modest income, racially diverse and rural populations by expanding the focus of APMs to Medicaid? In a word, yes, 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 and yes. It, this is a, an exciting area of very intense area of focus right now. Uh, so this is certainly a very timely conversation. Um, just to take a step back, uh, as we discussed briefly at the outset of, the, of this conversation, when we developed our 2030 strategy, we named five pillars. One of the pillars focused on equity. And within the equity pillar are four areas of focus, one of which is focused on increasing the number of underserved populations in our models. Uh, when we did the 10-year review, uh, looking back at our first 10 years of performance, one of the findings was that our models were not particularly diverse in terms of the beneficiaries being served. There was not enough uh, race and ethnic groups. There were not enough low-income groups and, and other underserved groups were not adequately represented in our models. And that has implication. It's not just a, a good thing to do, but when we think about how are we going to evaluate our models, will the findings be generalizable across uh, all of the beneficiaries that we serve? It's very important um, that we include the full representation of beneficiaries uh, in our models. And, and so one critical way of including more underserved populations in our models uh, is by including more safety net providers in our models. And Medicaid is, is absolutely key to that. Uh, certainly we have worked previously uh, with Medicaid, our, our accountable health communities model, for example, had the majority of the beneficiaries were in fact Medicaid beneficiaries. And a number of our more recent models launched the uh, chart model, a community health access and rural transformation model, our maternal opioid misuse model, or MOM. Through all of those, we have um, a significant focus on, on Medicaid beneficiaries. Even though, even though these models are, have launched more recently, we are continuing to build upon these models and our work in Medicaid to think about how can we incorporate more Medicaid providers and other, other models under development. Uh, for example, our future work in primary care, behavioral health, uh, maternal health, all of these areas we've signaled that we are exploring and uh, considering developing new models. And we want to make sure again that Medicaid is a is a primary uh, focus or, or significant focus for this work. We have worked previously with our colleagues in the Center for Medicaid and CHIP Services, CMCS. Uh, we are excited. We're also working more closely than ever with our colleagues in the Health Resources and Services Administration, or HRSA. Uh, and as you may know, HRSA uh, runs the Federally Qualified Community Health Center Program. And so they, through by way of the FQHCs, have a significant footprint on the ground in communities across the nation, especially uh, underserved communities. And we think that by engaging FQHCs in our model work, uh, we will be able to increase the number of beneficiaries for underserved communities uh, in our models. And in many cases, or perhaps the majority of cases, the funding for FQHCs uh, is certainly more likely to come from Medicaid than from Medicare. So by including FQHCs in our models, that's another way that we're able to include uh, Medicaid providers in our models. And really for us to be successful, we are quite focused on how are we aligning across Medicare, Medicaid, and FQHCs. And, uh, by this, I mean, how can we 
directionally aligned on quality measurement, uh, payment, financial mechanisms. And that's really important because if you are a provider and perhaps you only 50% of your population is Medicare and only 20% uh, is Medicaid, then you may not have as much of an incentive uh, to think about quality measurement that's only for Medicaid populations if it's not applying to Medicare, if it's also not applying in the commercial space. So really to the extent that we can harmonize our quality measurement and our payments across all the different lines of insurance that a patient could have in a provider's practice, we think that will make, make it just uh, more feasible uh, for providers to, to fully participate. So we're very much focused on that. We're also trying to better understand what types of learning supports and technical assistance might be needed. What are the recruitment strategies and how do these change across pairs? Dr. Hughes, I wanna take this opportunity to say thank you so much for all of your incredible insights and the wonderful information you've been sharing with us. And, and I wanna wrap up our conversation today by looking another measure of success, you mentioned the alignment that will be necessary to achieve success. And, and another thing that we need to achieve is we look to the goal of having all traditional Medicare and Medicaid beneficiaries in accountable care relationships and, and to advance health equity by 2030 is, is this goal of meaningful and significant beneficiary engagement. I mean, this will really be essential to the success of these programs. And, and recently, Director Liz Fowler, or CMMI Director Liz Fowler, spoke about this at a NACOS event. And she said, the language we are using is not resonating. Patients don't know what the term accountable care means and don't fully know better coordination across providers. Can you wrap up by sharing your parting thoughts on how CMMI is engaging beneficiaries and testing various payment model design elements, such as voluntary beneficiary alignment and attribution methodologies, benefit enhancements, and beneficiary engagement incentives to facilitate accountable care relationships between beneficiaries and care teams? Thank you, Daniel, for, for this important question. It certainly was very humbling to hear from a number of different beneficiary groups that we aren't describing our work in ways that they understand or that resonates with them. And in some cases, what we are prioritizing may not align with their priorities. And so that has really underscored the need for us to really make sure that we're engaging beneficiaries across the life cycle of our models from the very beginning, as we conceptualize models, are we focusing on priorities that are shared priorities with our beneficiaries and not just our providers? When we think about implementing the models at that stage, how is that working for beneficiaries who are participating? When we evaluate our work, what has been the impact on beneficiaries? What would they report? What's the beneficiary voice? Uh, and uh, how is that reflected in our evaluations? We recently held a, a roundtable event for engagement of beneficiaries, and we were startled, but quite pleased that we had over a thousand attendees uh, for our beneficiary engagement roundtable that for us really, again, signaled the importance of this area of work uh, and that we need to continue uh, to be a top priority. We have described as even as part of our strategic vision last year that partnerships, deeper partnerships of beneficiary and patient groups would be our fifth and critical and just a very critical pillar uh, and that we um, know that we need to continue to do more in that area. We, and, and certainly we're, we've moved beyond just, just talking. We've moved beyond the strategic vision in our paper. We've moved beyond 
uh, the focus groups and the outreach. When you look across some of our models, we are already uh, including specific proposals for how we can better engage beneficiaries. We've talked quite a bit on the, about the ACO REACH model. In addition to the beneficiaries, we are also focusing on the needs of caregivers uh, for these patients. Um, we are holding listening sessions on topics that matter to our beneficiary caregivers. We're expanding our measurement and evaluation strategy to assess the caregiver experience and outcomes. And we are increasingly engaging with caregiver-focused organizations who can provide feedback and input on our CMMI models as well. So I think uh, between the beneficiary outreach as well as the caregiver outreach, that over time, our models will, will be improved uh, both in terms of the quality of care and the experience of care, which are just both critically important for our transformational work. Well, this transformational work is important. Dr. Hughes, I want to thank you for really on behalf of all of those out there doing that work, the, the members and partners of the Institute for Advancing Health Value, the listeners to the Race to Value podcast. We're very appreciative of everything that the CMS Innovation Center is doing to help us achieve this goal for 2030 to have patients and accountable care relationships and really driving and advancing and moving the needle forward on health equity and value-based care. Thank you so much for your leadership and, and joining us this week in the Race to Value. Thank you. Thank you so much again for inviting me to participate.